And so I got to game four with 10 minutes. I finished the rules of setup. I had eight minutes to go. By question four, I knew I had done something wrong. None of the answer choices were working and a lot of them actually seemed to be right. I was just so freaked out at that point. With eight minutes left, I might have only finished one question. Hello, and welcome to the Seven Sage Podcast. I'm J.Y. Ping, and on today's episode, I speak with Seven Sager Al, who scored a 172 on his July 2020 flex test. Al took the LSAT twice and studied cumulatively for one year. A spoiler alert, if you haven't taken the May 2020 PT or PTs 81 and 83, you might want to skip this episode for now. We do reference some of the content of those prep tests. I'm very happy to have Seven Sager Al here with me on the podcast. Al, welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me today. You have a really great LSAT score. You got a 172 on the July 2020 flex test. Yes. And you started with a diagnostic in the 150s. So Mm -hmm. the first thing I want to talk to you about is how you improved by 16 points, which is a huge improvement. So I actually first want to preface by saying my diagnostic, I think, was actually lower than a 156. The reason I say 156 is because that was a score I started with my first test after the core curriculum. So I can only assume that I improved like a good chunk of points from the core curriculum alone. So I can imagine somewhere in the 140s would be my actual diagnostic. As far as academic background, I went to high school in California, college, university in Minnesota. And I I think I've always been a particularly strong student, maybe not naturally. So like not everything came to me, but I was always pretty hardworking, diligent, you know, I have quite a strong undergraduate GPA. So I think that that's kind of reflected. And so academically, I've never had a problem actually committing to schoolwork or a goal when I set my mind to it. I think the main problem is though that the LSAT was quite unlike anything I've ever done before in terms of of tests. So it, it took quite a bit to get used to. What was your major? I was a political science major. Did you find that to be particularly helpful for the test? I've read some things out there that actually the best majors statistically that, that do well in the LSAT are like, you know, engineering and physics. And I think political science is particularly helpful with reading comp because there's a lot of reading, but because really very little of it is, is memorization based. I don't think there's, you know, one major out there that I can say would, would really help you with the test. Yeah. Yeah. But the reading for sure helped. When you first started with prep testing, did you have any sections that you were particularly strong or weak in? In the core curriculum, I just went in order and I had a, I didn't really have a good gauge of where I was strong and where I was weak. But when I first started practice testing, I think it was all what you'd expect from someone kind of first starting, you know, maybe the minus 10 to 12 in, in reading comp, mm-hmm. eight to 10 in LR, and then quite a lot missing on the games. But I, I think that can come with a lot of practice. So I wouldn't say there was a section I was particularly weak in, but, but I will say that in the beginning, I specifically had a goal of, you know, 167 because I had another family member go to this certain law school and I thought that was needed to get in. And it sounded like a great number to me. So, you know, I calculated like exactly how many I would get wrong on the test in the very beginning in the hopes of getting a 167. And it came out to like minus seven on reading comp, four in LR and one on the games. And the reason I said seven on reading comp is because that, you know, I think that was my biggest struggle improving on reading comp. And I said, I would never be able to improve on reading comp. If I had to pick a section that I struggled with in the beginning, it it was probably reading comp. When you started studying, did you have the mindset of like, I'm going to tackle, say, reading comp first, 
this is a question that comes up a lot. Like, should, should I? What should I do? Should I just try to uh, improve a little bit altogether in each of the three sections, or should I just really, you know, a lot of students prefer to like lock games down first. In the very beginning, I just went in the order of the core curriculum, which was section by section. Which to me, I actually think is a great way of learning the the fundamentals. At least, but once I started practice testing, I found what was most helpful to me was doing a little bit every single day mm-hmm. of each section. I, I thought that was most helpful to me. You know, at the very least, if one day I wasn't studying, I, I think I made sure to do games every single day if I could. But for the most part, I'd take a practice test and then blind review, you know, slash review a little bit every single day. And I think that was most helpful for me. Because the test you took, the July 2020 test was flex. Was that one? disclosed or not? No, none of the flexes are disclosed except May. So I guess I I just have to tease that information out of your prep tests leading up to your official test. Mm. What did your raw scores look like across the three different sections? I would say I made my biggest improvement after the May exam, the first one. And my raw scores, I think, changed a lot between just May and July. So, So leading up to the May exam, I was scoring a scaled low to mid mid 170s raw score it's hard to calculate in my head what it what it turns out to be but i think i'd miss maybe anywhere from 1 to 4 on reading comp 0 to 5 on lr and maybe 1 on games i see yeah so so games more or less locked out mm-hmm. at minus 0 minus 1 and then the volatility came from whether you performed well on lr and rc right right you know, learning from kind of the mistakes I made on the May exam, which we can we can get into either now or some other point, but, you know, learning a little bit from my mistakes. Leading up to the July exam, I think I was a lot more prepared, both in terms of nerves, which I think is a huge, you know, deal on, on this exam. And raw score, I, I think it was one on the games, once again, max. I think at this point, I was able to score zero on RC, I wouldn't say most often, but probably like a quarter, a quarter or a third of the time, and then maybe up to three wrong. And then on LR, that was probably my most volatile section. I'd try to get, you know, anywhere from, you know, zero to four. I see. Yeah. So for the May 2020, you only have two official LSAT scores on record, May 2020 and July 2020. For right. May, you got a 168. Mm-hmm. Tell us what you learned from that. There's a lot of versions of the May exam, but the one that was disclosed was the one I had besides the LR. So I had the reading comp and I had the games. Mm. I'm like extremely neurotic and I have a pretty decent memory. So after every LSAT, I I almost just, I think by instinct, like I, I kind of mull over the questions I might have missed or, you know, had a hard time with and I happen to memorize, you know, them. So <laughs> I kind of know what I put on the May exam. You know, I still remember yeah. the July exam and I can say pretty confidently that I went I think five on the games, minus Ouch. five. Even though from tutoring and from kind of just looking at the section myself, it didn't seem that bad of a game section, the May one. RC, I think I missed two. And then and then LR, whatever left is from 168. So probably two or three in LR. That sounds like an uncharacteristically poor performance from you mm-hmm. from Logic Games. I, I don't think I've missed five, you know, before the May exam in a long, long time. Probably not until I PT the the dinosaur, PT-57. So oh, yes. It's been yeah. a long, long time, yeah. What happened? So I think on the May exam, it was the first time they were taking the flex. So I was really already quite nervous how they were going to scale it. You know, were they going to think of new questions? Would they increase the difficulty of the test? And so all that kind of played a factor. Mm-hmm. Um, going into the test, my first section was LR. And after the LR section, everything went went fine. I, I finished on time had time to double check some answers. So I think 
you know, missing two or three there was, was quite normal for me at the time. So I was feeling pretty confident up until I reached section two, which was the games. And I breezed through games one and two. And then game three, which everyone calls the hardest game. It's the one with the cities like Vancouver and it's a double layer sequencing and it's like fall and spring, you know, game three of the Mayflex. And so. Oh, yeah. I remember that one. There's no sequencing in that one, right? There's fall semester, spring semester, and you had to group the yeah. game pieces, which were the cities, yeah. into the two groups. Yeah. No, it's really funny because I, because everyone you know, that I, at least I, I tutor and I discussed after the test was like game three was, was by far the hardest. And I think it was hard because there was a lot of brute forcing, like every right. answer. I remember on the test, I had to try every answer choice, but to me, those games aren't actually um, that bad. Like, I think I finished the game with, in maybe nine minutes, like I just wrote F and then S for fall spring. And then just like three slots underneath each one. And and to me that, that wasn't that bad of a setup at all. So that was, that was okay. And so I got to game four with 10 minutes and Wow. You know, I thought like this was, you know, this was going to be fine, like a zero on the game section. I saw it was a sequencing with, with some funny rules. One of the yeah. rules was, I think one slot one was equal to eight, two yeah. was equal to seven. And those rules aren't, you know, inherently bad at all. Like, you can just check everything. But um, I hadn't encountered a game like that before. I think there was one similar in prep test. It was like one of the the very early yeah. ones, like swimming. Yeah. It was like a bunch of swimming lanes. And there's so, also one where... I think it was like shopping aisles. Some aisles oh, are, right, are identical right. to one another. But yeah. it's it's a very rare kind of rule where they tell mm -hmm. you, oh, slot number one is actually identical to slot number mm -hmm. whatever, right? Mm -hmm. So whatever game piece you put in one, you have to put in the other. Yeah. Yeah. Very rare kind of rule that shows up by our collective memories, I think, three times ever yeah. in the history of the Rare, outside. but not... I, I think if you're really experienced as games or, or, you know, I'd done, I think, every game like five, six times <laughs> yeah. at that point. So I, I thought it should be no problem. And I finished the rules of setup. I had eight minutes to go. And by question four, I knew I had done something wrong because this is a sign, something I tell my students, and it was that none of the answer choices were working. Oh, no. And a lot of them actually seemed to be right, like oh, changing yeah. some stuff. And so I knew something was wrong. And it was when I realized I'm first, I wrote seven slots instead of eight. Oh. And I think I missed, I wrote one is equal to seven instead of one is equal to eight. And so, so I had eight minutes left. And I think seeing a mistake like that shouldn't be a big problem because, you know, you can just redraw the board. It's eight slots. All the other rules were fine. I drew yeah. them out correctly, but you know, I was just so freaked out at that point. It was the first LSAT. I was like, I'm going to screw this up and completely bomb the test. I think, or, or sorry, that, that section I should say. And I think with eight minutes left, I might've only finished, you know, one question, like besides the wow. acceptability question. Wow. And I think after okay. that test, it was, it was honestly quite heartbreaking. After that section, you mean? Yeah. Just after that section, it was heartbreaking. Like I wanted to, to break down, but I knew I had another section to go, which was reading comp and, you know, looking back. At the answers from the Mayflex because it was disclosed. I can't say for sure, but I'm quite confident that I, I missed two remembering the answers I put. Yeah. So, you know, overall, not, not the performance I wanted. And so after the test, I really made it, you know, a goal to do just a ton of games between then and, and in July. Yeah. More than I had, had done before, which is crazy because I've already done in every game quite a lot. And so I just wanted to, to do more and more. What can one even do to improve on games? given that uh, the person had already taken all the games and it sounded like just test day nerves. It sounded like something that, you know, the, you know, look, I'm sure looking back on the games now, you don't find them particularly difficult. And this is a mm. pretty common experience that students have where under the stress of the test, the games seem 
super challenging. But then mm -hmm. looking back on it, you realize that it's just another sequencing game, like a bunch of other sequencing games that I've done mm -hmm. before or whatever it is. What did you do? How did you even start to, the diagnosis of what, what happened? What went wrong? And how can I prevent that from happening? The way I thought about it was there's kind of two types of ways that I could get through a game. It was either kind of set it up and I inference, infer as much as I can. And I spend more time up front and then going out through the questions, I should have an easier time. Yeah. The second way is just brute forcing everything. Yeah. And I think it's generally safe to say that most of the time you'd be better off trying to figure out more up front because it should help you with you know, with a lot of the questions and you'd eventually save time. But I think one thing, you know, eventually my students came to and I came that I came to was when I couldn't infer in the beginning and, you know, I spent time trying to do so, I would end up wasting a lot of time and I wouldn't be sure when to actually move on to the questions versus hmm. trying to set up the board more and more. So I kind of made figuring out that, that line, my goal between May and July. That is really interesting. So it, would it be fair to say that the reason you score so poorly on the May game section, uh, on specifically on the fourth game, is that you just dumped a lot of time up front trying to figure out inferences with mm -hmm. uh, nothing to show for it. And that's where yeah. you burned all your time. And then, and then there wasn't much time left. That which which only adds to the psychological stress of like oh my god what, what, mm -hmm. you know this is this is a dumpster fire here I agree that it's kind of black and white but I also agree that it is a very good distinction to have because psychologically that is the experience that I have as well when I attempt new games uh, that are released right obviously like you want to make the inferences up front especially the crucial ones that just crack a game wide open those are the elegant solutions and the more you're able to do that easier and easier games become because you just get better at seeing the recurring inferences. But somewhere in the back of your mind, you have to always be aware that that's just not going to happen all the time right. for every single game for a variety of reasons. Maybe the game actually is just hard. You know, there are games that are designed where there isn't this single inference that cracks the game wide open. Those mm -hmm. games we call, we generally call those rule-driven games where, you know, if you try to map out all the possible worlds, you end up with like 60 possible worlds, right? right? Because those are just rule-driven games. So there are just inherent reasons why you can't do it. And then Another reason is just that, you know, sometimes you just freeze up because you're under a lot of stress. Mm -hmm. It's very nerve wracking. So you do have to have an alternative attack strategy. And that's called brute forcing your way through the questions and answer choices, mm -hmm. right? But that line is different, obviously, depending on who you are, how much preparation you've done. Everyone has to find out for themselves, like where that line is. Yeah. What did you do? How, where, where did you draw the line? Leading up to the May exam, I was already quite, you know, I was pretty decent at games. I would never miss more than two on practice tests unless it was like a crazy miscellaneous. And so after the May exam, you know, I'd, I had to account, you know, for my nerves somehow. And so there would be two ways that I would practice games after the May exam. You know, some of the times I would work on, I, I guess you could call it just general speed and like brute forcing where I would just, you know, do a game and, you know, going into the rules, I would spend maybe basically my, my line was I would infer until I couldn't anymore. And so after like 10 seconds, I would just stop. You know, I wouldn't try to I wouldn't try to force myself to go any longer. I see. So whatever was just plainly obvious, 
those inferences you would you would take and you would put on you would put on the board. But then if you if you just couldn't see any more inferences after like five ten seconds, that's it. You're out of there. Onto the next rule, or if there are no more rules, onto the next question. Right, right. And so, you know that that took up I think a big chunk of my time. I, I think leading up to the July exam, I was doing maybe three sections of games a day, and and probably two of those sections were just. I would just call them, you know, working on speed, just trying to infer what was plainly obvious and then just, you know, going through the questions. You know, sometimes on, I would say, harder games, like games three and four, I would try to work on specifically on inference. So just spending as much time as I needed to try and see which games I could kind of solve Mm -hmm. as much as possible up front. And I had no time limit for it, really. And from there, like that, that practice of, of trying to see how much you can infer off of off of the rules, I think it really ingrained in my head and kind of sent a pattern, like a signal to my head, which games I could, I could actually infer on the real test. Um, Because, you know, although the games are different, like each game is different, they seem very, very similar in a lot of ways. And so working on speed, and then the second type of, of practice I do is I just kind of take a game, not really worry about the time limit, and just try to infer as much as possible. That also helped me see, you know, which games you really can and for more than others. That makes a lot of sense. And it's actually a really smart prep strategy to simultaneously train up your speed and, and brute force. Going into the July exam, and I guess I'll just talk about the games for now. I had probably 13 or 14 minutes going into the last game. You know, I, I know, you know, people shouldn't do this, but I browsed on Reddit after and everyone was like, the cabinet game was so brutal, you know, brute forcing everything. And it was a lot like the fall and spring game from the Mayflex, except I would just say like, you know, with, with a couple more variables. So a lot harder. And okay. I finished, you know, the last question on the cabinet game with like a second to go. And so I, I honestly think I really credit just working on speed and and not cracking under pressure when I couldn't infer stuff because on the cabinet game, I, at least from what I remember, I, I don't think I could infer anything. I just literally went into the the rules and just started brute forcing my way through all the answers. <laughs> and I think that that really helped because, you know, thinking back as much as I could remember, I don't see how there was another way to realistically do that game and in such time pressure. Yeah, I I don't think that even matters. If if like we'll never know because I mean you know, yeah, unless yeah. they release it. But but uh, let's just even concede the point. Even if there was a more elegant solution. So what? You didn't see it at the time, right? When the clock was was ticking, right? So there's the elegant solution may as well not have existed for you. Again, psychologically, I think the difference is that for someone who's really good at solving games, you're used to making inferences, having arriving at the elegant solution, right? And just you know blasting your way through the questions, such that when you are up against a game where that normal mode of operation fails you get flustered. You you don't really even know how to react to that. Like when I heard you talk about the May game and how you had so much time, even after discovering you made an error in the in the very last game, mm-hmm. you had so much time. I think if you were just better mentally prepared, right. you could have switched tact and then went for the brute force method and just, you know, got your way to a major way through the rest of the questions. Mm-hmm. Maybe you wouldn't have gotten a perfect minus zero, but you certainly wouldn't have missed five questions. Right. I think the, it makes a lot of sense that the way that you explain how the lessons you drew from the May test, how you had to uh, really train up this backup strategy of brute forcing. And as it turns out, you know, it's not really even a backup strategy. It's a main strategy because you should just count on the fact that mm-hmm. one of the games, at least 
on actual test day is going to send you into the world of brute forcing. Right. I also think it's interesting to point out how, you know, even after finding out I messed up a rule, I think I still had, you know, anywhere from six to six, probably six or seven minutes, and I didn't get a single question. And if I had just spent, I mean, six or seven minutes on one question, <laughs> I would have gotten it right. But I, I ended exactly. up getting nothing right because exactly. what I did was I, I was so used to getting, you know, almost all of it right. And I had this expectation right. of doing so that when I started freaking out, I actually tried to attempt each question. And when I, you know, couldn't do it in 30 seconds, I moved on to the next one. And for some reason uh, that ultimately led to, to me getting nothing right. Wow. Yeah. I have the target time here pulled up for, this is seven stage data, but for the fourth game, it's eight minutes and 46 seconds hmm. is the average target time for students who score between minus zero to minus two on that section. Yeah. So you had plenty of time to do that game. And the reason is because you you blasted through the first three games really fast. You actually ex you beat on game three, the one about the spring and fall semesters, you beat target time. Target time is 11 minutes and nine seconds. And I think you, you said you spent about, was it eight minutes? It was nine, maybe a little, maybe a little more or less than nine. Yeah. Okay, great. So that was, that was games. I think that was really helpful advice because brute forcing, practicing brute forcing logic games is not fun. Mm -hmm. It's just a grind. All right. But, but you, you got to do it because you have to be comfortable with doing that. I've noticed that when I brute force questions, sometimes I am able to have a sense of which answers are of higher priority, which answers I should look at first mm -hmm. so that I'm not just blindly going down the list, like let's check A, let's check B, let's check. I look at all the answers. Sometimes I'm able to take in all the answers together. I notice some patterns with like, oh, these three answers are all about this right, game right. piece. These other two answers are about these two other game pieces. I wonder why that is, if that's significant. Ah, okay. It's maybe because these three game pieces are whatever. And then so I feel like, oh, maybe I should actually check these other two answer choices first. They seem to be of higher priority. That's kind of, I don't know what to call that. That's just like a game sense mm -hmm. that comes from having to brute force the games a lot. Mm -hmm. Like you don't, you don't exercise that muscle. That, that game sense when you elegantly solve the game up front and make all the inferences, right? Because then to you, the answers, who cares about the answers? Yeah. Just, you, you, are, you can see the whole world, right? I wonder if you, you've had uh, similar experiences. No, with I know exactly what you're talking about, but I, I can't quite put it <laughs> into words. But, but yeah. But you know, that's, a, that's another benefit of just doing a lot of brute forcing mm -hmm. is you, you, you develop this, um, I don't know, what to, like this intuition for which answers are worthy of your time, are higher priority. Mm. I also will say for practicing games you know a lot of people i know you you recommend the the foolproofing method you know i think it was doing games a bunch yeah. like 10 times over in a row there's a lot of other methods out there like on seven sage i'm not sure to pronounce his name i think it's pacifico or, or something mm -hmm. but he has his own kind of foolproofing method and i think those are all really helpful i did the foolproofing throughout the core curriculum but i think after for some reason i didn't feel like it was particularly helpful to me to at the level I was to do a game, you know, have sometimes a crucial inference there. And then I felt like when I did it again, you know, I had it memorized and I know that that's kind of the point, but once I was at a certain skill level, I found it kind of hard to apply. Like I found if I memorized the inference and then I did the game right over again, I wasn't sure how much, like how beneficial it could be for me. Right. So personally yeah. what I did was I stuck by the foolproofing in the core curriculum and I think you know, after I reached a pretty decent level at games, I would just literally cycle through the test. So one day I might work on games from prep tests one to four, and then, 
you know, the next day, like four to eight, next day, eight to 10. And that was what personally worked for me. It was also really easy to organize as well, which is a a plus. You just do, you know, the games in order. Was the issue giving yourself enough time to forget the inference? I can, I can totally see an argument for why having the inference memorized and then you do it right there would ingrain it in your head. But I just found it, I don't know. I couldn't see how that would be super beneficial to me if I, if I just knew the inference. I'm not sure. No, no I, I completely agree with you. I completely agree with you on that point. I, I think uh, perhaps, uh, I feel like maybe, maybe I, I could have communicated it better. I, I think it's actually not the point to memorize the inference. The point rather is to memorize the setup that gives rise to the inference. Maybe an example is, is helpful here. Like inferences are recurring from game to game. So at a more abstract level, one of these inferences that are recurring is when there's pressure exerted on group, let's say in grouping games, there are pressures exerted on groups because other groups are starting to fill up. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's something that's kind of a very high level abstraction. Let's say you have a th- three group grouping game. One of the groups fills up, right? Is full, cannot accommodate any more game pieces. Right. That's, I mean, you know, on the face of it, that's just that. Okay, the group filled up. So what? Well, so what is that now there's a lot of pressure on the other two remaining groups that are still empty, uh, that are still uh, accommodating to accommodate the remaining game pieces. And now rules that used to not matter so much matters a lot, right? For example, let's say M and N hate each other. They can't go together. If you have three open groups, what are you going to do with that rule? Not much, right? There's just too many opposite. Uh, possibilities mm-hmm. for placing m and n but if one of the groups fills up now one slot in, in in one of the remaining groups and the other slot in the other remaining group they have to get occupied by m and n and they have to you know f- switch around right so that's actually a huge inference that only falls out you know if you remember this abstraction right that like when one group gets filled up there's pressure exerted on these two other groups i mean it's kind of a difficult thing to communicate because it's very easy to like you know when you do the game again like what will happen is that you'll just memorize. Oh yeah, that's right. This last group got filled up, and that's what pushed M and N into the first groups, occupying two more slots. And maybe you know more inferences fall out of that. Like it's of course like you're gonna remember that, especially if you just did the game. But I guess the point is not really to memorize that. The point is to realize that that's just the particular way the outside writers have of setting up an inference, and they're gonna use that again on the next grouping game that has three groups. Right, and they're gonna maybe mm-hmm. in a slightly different way. So, it sounds like what you did though is precisely like it give it gave you gave yourself a lot of time to just forget the inference altogether, and then kind of test yourself to see you know coming back to it, uh, whether it's a few days or or some weeks later, coming back to the game clustered with a bunch of other games to see if you really internalize this ability to recognize these recurring inferences. Right, which which is fantastic. I mean, I think the way that you approached it is um, really good. Good approach. The way you described it was, I I didn't like how I guess in the beginning how it seemed like was to memorize the inference, but I think I, I probably misinterpreted. But but I agree that the most important part is, you know, learning the setup to how to get to the inference. And for me, you know, doing a game, really reviewing it, and then revisiting it, you know, maybe a month or two later, I think really helped. Yeah, yeah, you do want to give yourself time to forget it. Otherwise, I, I, I should probably emphasize that point more because otherwise it is very uh, easy to get into this state of like, well, I already me- remember everything. Like, what's, what is the point here? But anyway, so that's, that's logic games. Maybe we can back up and just, you, you can tell us about how your improvements accrued throughout your prep testing stage. Was there anything special that you did when you were prep testing to get better at LR and RC? Mm-hmm. 
So at the beginning, when I was prep testing, I made it a goal to get through as many prep tests as possible. And, and it, you know, it's a, it's a common mistake we hear all the time as quick as possible. And so I was doing, you know, three to four prep tests a week in the very beginning, which was totally against all advice. And I, I actually <laughs> don't think I was blonde reviewing at all in the very beginning, just because, I mean, I was just so eager to get the score. I was like, I can't wait right. any longer, you know, after you take the test. And yeah. No improvement, very little improvement came from there. You know, I was still stuck upper 150s because I came out of the core curriculum at a 156. So still stuck at the upper 150s. And then I think on prep test 57, along with the dinosaur game that I was doing it. And after, you know, I felt so good about LR and I think I came out at like a minus 10 in one section. And so it was after that moment that I realized I think I really needed to change my studying up. And Mm -hmm. For the first part, it meant just the easiest thing, which was just implementing, you know, blind review. But then it became a question of, you know, how do I go about this blind review? Is it just, do I literally spend as much time as possible on every <laughs> single question? Or is it just, you know, the ones I, I have a lot of trouble with? Or, you know, like I said, anything that's not 99 to 100% sure. And so in the beginning, I actually made it an effort to pretty much do the whole test untimed. And so it was actually quite meticulous. You know, I'd spend... I think anywhere from four to five hours on a section, single LR mm-hmm. section blind reviewing. But I think a lot of improvement came from there because yeah. I found that, you know, I wasn't blind reviewing in the beginning. So the moment I started blind reviewing, I was already blind reviewing, you know, mid to high 170s. And so that helped a lot. But I think where most of my improvement came from was when I would get a question wrong or, you know, get it wrong during the test and then look at it during blind review, I would actively try to remember a similar question to it and see if I could approach it the same way. Because, you know, LR has, well, just like games, that has a lot and a lot of patterns. And so um, one question I'll always remember is, I don't know if you remember it, it's, it's about Hatha Yoga. It's like Hatha Yoga plus counseling versus smoking and counseling or something. And they compare which, you know, which groups did better. And it was a necessary assumption question. And so the way I kind of thought about the question broadly after reviewing it was like, You know, they're comparing two groups and then the necessary assumption is like this other factor didn't play that big of a part or or something along those lines. But then, you know, doing more and more tests, I think I found in my prep tests, you know, five or six other questions that made me think of Hatha Yoga. Um, There's one about it's in it's in prep tests. It's in the 80s. It's about, you know, stretching for back pain. Yeah, for back pain. And if and if it something like if it causes significant pain, then you must tell the merits of it or something. Also a necessary assumption, it, you know, I thought of another question like that. It was about children and painters and it better not. And the answer was, you know, something about aesthetically displeasing. And so that also made me think of Hatha Yoga, like a similar framework of having two groups. And then the answer, you know, rules out like some other factor or something. And so a lot of my improvement came from just recognizing a question. And then I wouldn't like force myself like, hey, you know, think of a question that reminds you of this, but, but it would subconsciously come you know, through a lot of practice. And so doing that a lot, I could see patterns throughout questions and that, that I think helped me specifically on the harder questions. Again, here, it's about abstracting away from this particular Mm -hmm. question to some pattern that recurs in in a different, Mm -hmm. in a different question in in logical reasoning. Mm -hmm. A lot of my improvement also came just from being more efficient. For example, on, and I'll always remember this, you know, on principle questions, I think you kind of have this advice, like if it's a conditional rule, if they start out with the necessary and like the sufficient condition or something in the answer choice, then it's wrong immediately. 
And I used that trick on my July test. I was, my last question was a principal question and I had like 30 seconds left, but it was a, it was one where you could diagram. And so like four of the answers, like the logic was switched. And so I found the immediate answer in like five seconds. And I, you know, I I can't say if I got it right, but (laughs) I'm positive (laughs) that I did. And I mean, that saves you a lot. Like that saved me one whole question, I think. Yeah. Just kind of knowing and being strong with, with fundamentals and logic. Unless you come from like a math or a Mm-hmm. logic background you know it's really new to you and you, you spend so much time studying it and what like on any given prep test maybe you'll get five questions that use conditional logic right maybe less right so it seems like a really weird cost benefit analysis really weird reward versus cost trade off but i think you you really should look at it more in terms of like opportunity cost. Right. It's not just that question that you, you just talked about, the, the principal question or PSA question, right? Where it's so reliable that mm-hmm. out of the five answers, at least one of them is going to give you the P and the C, the premise and the conclusion in the wrong place. Instead of P mm-hmm. and the sufficient, C and the conclusion, yeah. they're going to flip it around. It's just reliable that mm-hmm. there will be a trap answer. Like So really, you should look at it as an opportunity cost. You know, if your logic is... Okay, you'll identify it. But if your logic is really strong, you'll identify it in like a split second. Right. And that time that you're not spending on this question, that's the time that improves your score because you're spending that time on some other question. If I say like sufficient assumption questions, PSA questions, must be true questions, these are questions that you can fully solve with uh, strong logical fundamentals and that you should you should strive to and in fact i I don't know if there's a way like if you're targeting a 170 plus i'm not sure there is a way around it you you can't just get those questions right you got to get them right you got to get them right fast yeah so that you can do other questions should we talk about rc then i feel like we haven't we haven't really spent too much time on rc yeah yeah let's talk about rc i think for i would say the vast majority of people rc is the the toughest section to improve on yeah for a good reason in my own way of thinking, I think RC is probably 80 to 90% like actually comprehending the passage, which I, which I think only comes from, you know, like reading more or something. Yeah. And then I would say like the last 10% comes from, you know, the strategy, how you do it, all those kinds of things. And it's kind of hard for me to explain it, but I was going PT after PT and I think I was always getting minus five to, to minus 10. And I, I was quite frustrated because I would never go below minus five, never get a score, you know, minus three, minus two. And and because of that, it always felt like that was the one roadblock that prevents you, prevented me at least from getting, you know, a score in the 170s. Because, you know, as well as I could do in, in LG, like let's say a minus zero or, you know, even best case scenario at the beginning of my prep, I was getting like a minus three or two in LR. If, if you get a minus seven in RC, I don't think you can ever really crack 170. Yeah. So I really... You know, I tried a lot of things, you know, a lot of strategies and it ended up surprisingly, I would say relatively RC is now my, my best section games. I'll, I'll pretty much always go zero to one, but I think it's, it's a lot easier to go zero to one on games in RC right now. If I can usually go zero to one or zero to two on RC, I would definitely say that's my best section right now. And mm-hmm. so at the beginning just going through prep tests after prep tests, but I actually found the blinder view method most helpful on RC. So I would do a test and then I would, you know, look at a passage, dissect it. And the way I would, I would actually construct it throughout my my schedule was I I would do a test, let's say on Monday, and then I would try to blind review a passage or two every single day. The best way I think to study for myself at least was doing a little bit every day. And so I'd blind review a little bit of LR, a little bit of RC, and just kind of do that throughout the week. And so 
during the actual blind review, I would try to look for information that was not relevant to the questions in the end. What do I mean by that? Well, you know in a passage how there's like, for example, they tell you a bacteria and then they tell you the name of the bacteria. It's like, you know, P whatever, and it's in italics. Like information like that. And then I would kind of look back at the answers and the answer choices. Like, did this question rely on that? Did this question rely on that? Did this question rely on that? And, you know, if the answer turned out to me no, then I kind of have that ingrained in my head. And the next time I do a passage, I get a better sense of what they're actually looking for in the questions and the answers. And that ended up, you know, helping me a lot. Interesting. RC is similar and different to LR in that most of the questions on RC are inference type questions. They're like, it's like you're doing a bunch of most strongly supported just in a row. Like, you know, they'll, they'll say like the passage mentioned one of these, right? Or if the passage, if they don't say the passage mentioned it, they'll say the passage implied, you know, what? So you're saying that what you would do is actually just meticulously go through every single question and cross-reference each question with, against the passage to see what information was used in the passage to support the correct answer choice. Yes. Weren't you worried that that method might make you discount information that they didn't use, but they could have used? Yes. When people ask me, like, kind of about the way I studied and, you know, even during tutoring, they always ask me that. Like, aren't you kind of worried that there's information that you'll forget or information that's important? But I, it's, it's kind of hard to explain. I found that after doing maybe 20 or 30 PTs, I think it was anywhere from PT 40 to 70. After doing that over and over, I'd spend, you know, hours on a passage. Like sometimes on one passage, I'd spend... Well, sometimes the whole day, <laughs> to be honest, on just one passage. But I really feel like there are patterns and you do it over and over. You can kind of see what they're looking for. And so, you know, it wasn't going to be easy to improve my comprehension in just a few months. Um, I did do some extra things on the side because I remember in the core curriculum, you recommended kind of just reading a lot, like articles. And so I, I purchased an Economist and Atlantic subscription and I... I read a bunch of topics that I weren't familiar with. I think that helped a little bit. I would do like an hour a day, you know, 30 minutes a day whenever I had time. And so that helped. But to me, I kind of, I kind of visualized the perfect way to do RC and how I wanted to approach it. So to me, there's like two ways you could do it. One is spending a decent amount of time up front. And I think that's, that's a great way. I think spending, you know, four to five minutes is, is a good way to go. And then, you know, if you, through that way, you would run through the questions a lot quicker, right? Because you have a much better grasp of the passage. But to me, I would, you know, play around with and take notes of how long I spent on a passage and the perfect time where I could read as fast as I could and get no more information out. Like if I read the passage for two minutes, 50 seconds, would it make a big difference if I spent three minutes, you know, on the passage? And so that was a lot of, of kind of my studying, just doing the passages, making note of how much time I spent on it. And then during, you know, review, blind review, not only going over the information that I thought, you know, might be used or not be used and cross-reference that with the answers, you know, in the passage, but I also made a mental note of, do I think I could have gained a better understanding by spending more time? And so eventually, I think the reason I got know quite good at RC was no matter the passage barring some really hard ones like there's an earthquake one in the 70s or 80s it's it's passage four was ridiculously hard I would always spend anywhere from I think two to three minutes maybe 330 like on the earthquake passage and that seemed to be the sweet spot for me the problem was if I spent more than 330 I do think I had a, a marginally better understanding of the passage but you know a lot less time you know a lot of things work for different people like when I 
you know, some of my students, I recommend spending more time up front, but some of my other students, I, they spent, you know, initially they come to me spending around five minutes on a passage and, and it doesn't work out for them. And then I tell them, you know, maybe you could try this, this, this kind of what I did. And then it works, works out a lot better for them. So definitely experiment. I know personally, when I was going through kind of the core curriculum, you recommend spending about five minutes, but I, I feel like I don't have a good enough memory to read something longer and then, you know, count on myself to, to have it in my head. So, so I think I'd rather, my goal was to come out of the passage with a good understanding, like summarize the whole thing in four or five sentences, you know, the best way I could. And, you know, not looking at it, can I summarize it? And if so, I, I would kind of use that as my, my check mark that I can move on. Yeah, that's, that's great. Students should think more like an economist when they approach time management on the test. If you spend five hours on a passage, you are going to have excellent understanding. Mm-hmm but your marginal returns are quickly diminishing. Mm-hmm. The fourth and fifth hour you're spending on the passage, you're barely getting anything out of it. You've already gotten most of what you need to get in the first few minutes, right? So I, I use a couple hours as an exaggeration, but right, the right. point still holds. You experience diminishing marginal returns as soon as you start reading the passage. So you have to find out where that sweet spot is for, for you. I think that the fact that the test has gone digital has actually made time management a lot more tangible because mm-hmm. uh, on the digital tester on Seven Sage, you just you get a timing report that tells you precisely how much time you spent on the passage, precisely how much time you spent on the questions. So it makes time management a lot more tangible if if that's something you're you're looking to improve. I'm still curious about this the sort of the method of just anticipating like what information is is important versus what's not. The example you gave where like they the name, the, the Latin name of a particular bacteria. Yeah, I feel like that stuff is always like, they'll never be like, hey, what was the bacteria called? And then they give you a, a list of five different la- names. I, I don't think they ever do that. It's kind of silly. I've found that for me, some of the hardest RC questions are the inference questions that rely upon its support, a random piece of information that didn't play any significant role in mm-hmm. the major flow of the passage, but was there. It was there. It was mentioned. And then it was just hmm. sort of forgotten. And turns out that that particular piece of information was what was relevant to support the correct answer choice. And, you know, so I, I, I mean, I, I distinctly, I, I don't recall which question, but uh, which PT, but I distinctly recall the question where I was just frantically reading the passage over and over. I probably had like time to not read, but skim the passage like two or three times over to try to find where the support came from. I just couldn't do it. And it turned out it was like in the second sentence or something like that. Like the first or second sentence, they just offhandedly mentioned it. And it didn't really have anything to do with the, mm-hmm. you know, the passage went in a different direction. But you know, the information was there. So it's it's a valid question, mm-hmm. right? The answer is supported. So that, that it's not like by definition of that type of question being difficult, it's not common, right? It, it's not common. Again, like I think for people with very tight error margins, you know, if you're targeting like minus zero to minus three in RC, every little point counts, right? You you don't want to kind of give up on anything. So that's the only thing that kind of gives me pause about cultivating a feeling that you are able to tell what information is relevant versus what's not. I guess I can say a couple things about that because, you know, I was shooting for quite a high score on on RC that I I knew there there's a possibility that there could be questions like that and how I would deal with them. Yeah. So let me start by saying, going into an RC passage, my goal 
is to always, first and foremost, try to figure out you know what they're trying to tell me, the main point. And yes. the most important information yes. that I would keep in my head as best as possible, you know, there's only so much I can memorize, right? Like as like as a person. Yeah. So what I first prioritized was information that I thought was relevant in some way or adding to the main point. And I think there will always, you know, be questions like like what you're talking about where uh, and I can't okay, I do remember this passage. Um I don't know if you remember it. It's 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 passage three of Prep Test eighty one. It's the dowsing passage about dowsing. Yeah. Okay. I remember that. I remember yeah. a question. It was which one of the following questions is answered in the passage, and the answer is dowsing used to locate anything other than resources or something, and the answer was in the first line of the passage, I believe. And so, how would you recommend a tackle it? Because I don't, I don't think I can memorize like that information on my first read because I, I think it's it's much more important to just kind of know the main point exactly what what they're telling you so i'm not sure how i would you know even go about memorizing or at least knowing that kind of information in the first place i feel like i'd be a lot more comfortable like having a decent amount of time and then like you said at least kind of looking through for that information in the passage my benchmark is you go for the main point you go for what they're trying to tell you and you know at least where to look for things i think i'm not saying like you just I just speed read through the entire passage in a minute and I go into the questions, but I try to know where to look for things, like where everything is. Yeah, that's that's exactly what I would say to that. The, the example you brought up at the example earlier example I used, if if like I think our strategy is precisely to have a structural outline of what the passage is, such mm. that you can, you know, if detail memory isn't there, which often it won't be you know at least where to go right. back to. I'm not going to go back to the whole passage. I know it's in paragraph three somewhere. I'm mm -hmm. just going to look at paragraph three. That's a lot better than just not knowing at all. But if that strategy fails where the information for whatever reason wasn't in paragraph three, well, then you have to ask yourself, like, why? Like, is it because your structural low-res summary was right. just incorrect? I mean, that's something you can fix, mm -hmm. right? Or if it's something more sinister where the LSAT writers actually just snuck a piece of information like they spent 80% of passage, 80% of the information on dowsing and what it's for was in paragraph three, but then like a random bit of information was snuck in in the first paragraph, right? I mean, at least for me, nine times out of 10, I'm probably not getting that right. question right, right? Unless I have just five minutes with nothing to do, I can leisurely go back to right. the whole passage. And again, you know, you got to think like an economist here. It's always about cost benefit analysis. It's always about like how much time am I willing to put in for what risk am I tolerating and what are the odds of me getting a reward? That is to say one point. Right. Right. I have to make that calculation. So I guess to to summarize, the way I would put my method was, you know, trying to get what you said, a structural low res, but as efficiently and as quickly as possible so I could get, you know, to the questions. So for example, the way I approach reading comp at the beginning of the LSAT, let's take the dowsing passage as an example. I would read like the first sentence, and I guess in my head I'd just spend a few seconds literally like memorizing it. Like this is what they told me, blah, blah, blah. Whereas the way I would read a passage now, we can take the dowsing you know, passage, for example, is, is I guess like a structural low res in my head. So I'd read the entire first paragraph and I'd be like, this is just what they're talking about, what dowsing is. And the second paragraph is, you know, the skeptics of dowsing. Third paragraph is the proponents of dowsing. Fourth paragraph is author takes a view. And so I would try to do that, but do it, you know, as efficiently as possible where I would have enough time for the questions. And so it took a lot of tinkering and playing around with time-wise, reading a passage to see how fast I could get a good, a very good low res with enough time to go to the questions. Yeah, that's the struggle. If you're not used to reading in that manner, 
it's really hard when you first start. It's really difficult. You don't even have words that you use that you you don't even have the vocabulary to assign paragraphs, right? So like even even the vocabulary that you use, the labels, the low rest structural labels, you have to collect them as you do more and more passages, as you do more and more of this、um, low rest summary, finding the right balance between like. When should I move on? When when do I have a good enough summary? When should I move on? Yeah, that's that takes a, that's a judgment call. There's also a lot of other things I tried. I don't know if I've seen a lot of videos you post of other like maybe your other students like doing actual time sections, but I don't know how, how the way you approach it. I'm curious if you do, you know, because I know you write out a low res, but do you highlight or underline or those you know kind of things? Oh yeah, so I I do have at least a handful of live commentary for. Oh, we're talking about RC,、yeah. right? For RC, I don't, I don't, can't recall off the top of my head which ones, but they're in the later, they're in the later '80s, where you know it's a, just, I guess back when it was paper, it was a, a camera setup taping the paper and me, and then now that it's digital, it's just a screen recording, and I don't do any kind of highlighting. Back when it was paper, I just use a, a pencil, and now that it's digital, I don't use the highlighting tool either. But what I Would do is I would make little annotations next to、mm. paragraphs if I needed to 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 help me like little abbreviations to help me outline the passage right to help me come up with a structural low resolution yeah, summary. Yeah, I think I approach it the same way as well. I usually try to keep highlighting and underlining to a minimum, but anything I thought was really crucial to the main point, I probably would. I probably would highlight, but generally I try to keep it to a minimum. Yeah, I'm not at all committed on like I, I mean. Highlighting is there as a function,、mm-hmm. right? So if you find it helpful,、yeah. by all means, use it. Maybe we should talk a bit about your view of the test now that you are no longer a student, and or at least predominantly, you're not a student anymore. You're mostly a a tutor. What has that experience been like? What, what have you learned, and what kinds of questions do you encounter most in your tutoring from your students? I think the first thing I can say is when I started tutoring, it was right after the July exam, so. Sometime in August, I had a lot of great positive feedback early on because I, where I came from was for almost every reading comp passage and LR question, I would write out you know quite a detailed explanation for like every single question. So, <laughs> you know, I think anywhere from prep test forty all the way to eighty, you'll find you'll find me and and you. I guess you're explaining, and I'm like the only one writing. I just want to butt in here and say、uh, this is a quote from a seven sager who says. Whenever I see your username, that's referencing you. Whenever I see your username, I know I can trust and recommend the explanation. <laughs> This is in the context of, of them talking about how how helpful your explanations have been. First of all, most people come to me for help in in reading comp. I would say it's like you know seventy percent reading comp, twenty percent LR, and and maybe ten percent games. Of the students that come to me for help in tutoring, a big chunk of them are kind of just starting out. And the first thing I recommend is is kind of To before thinking about getting a tutor, because a tutor is not cheap by any means, I recommend just going through the core curriculum very thoroughly. You know, because before you you hit, I would say a certain threshold, like let's say one sixty, for example. I think there's a lot that that can be learned. You know, just from going through the core curriculum, no tutor, you know, really needed. After that point, you know, a lot of the students that come to me, like I said, need need help in RC, and I'll give an example. So, so for the January exam, one of my students had trouble in RC. They would always, you know, they try to do four passages, and in the end, their score would be like, you know, minus twelve, minus thirteen, quite low. And so, one of the things I I recommended was, you know, just doing three passages, and that seemed to help a lot. And then we would kind of figure out, you know, if 
cheer. He had certain weaknesses in certain passages, figuring out which ones to do. Generally, I recommend, you know, just doing them in order, the first three. And so that's something that some students come to me, you know, for help. Another thing is, you know, some students come to me running out of time by the fourth passage. I think that's very common because I think if more students had time, they'd, they'd, you know, they'd be able to get more right on RC because all the answers are kind of, you know, in the passage. And so one of the things I mentioned is, you know, going through a lot of things I do is I go kind of, you know, blind review and I break down the passage for for students. And, and like I said, I kind of show them my method of doing the most efficient low res as possible. So they have, you know, more time for the questions. And that that seemed to mm-hmm. help a lot. As a tutor, I think it it really changed my perspective kind of on the test. I think it's a whole different, you know, ball game when you're reviewing the question yourself and thinking about it to yourself versus when you're explaining it to someone else. I would say I've gotten better at the test, even though I haven't like been studying for it as much, you can say. Because when you explain it to someone else, you kind of, well, I guess you kind of have to instinctively like explain it to yourself, right? Kind of studying. So that's the first thing. Another thing a lot of students come to me with is help in, you know, LR. And so, for example, one of my students had a lot of problems with, with necessary assumptions. And, and I think there's, you know, a couple different ways to tackle a necessary assumption. You know, when my student came to me, she said that she treated it as like a, a must be true, which I guess is, is right. But I'm a big fan of just instinctively going for the negation technique, you know, like you just mm-hmm. negate the necessary assumption. So we did a lot of practice with that kind of going through just questions that the students may have trouble with for tutoring. I usually recommend, you know, students come to me with a PT already done, and then we'll work on some questions they have. We might do some questions like live, like I might, you know, scrap together questions that, you know, I might ask the student a few days before the session, what year he had trouble with. I might look at the results from their test and then scrap together some questions I think would be helpful, you know, to learn because I think LR, I think I said this before, but you know, the questions have, you know, patterns, similarities to other questions. You've mentioned in the forums that prior to working as a tutor yourself, you've also worked with other seven sagers, specifically uh, Can't Get Right, yes, Josh, yes. and uh, Rochisha, Habeas mm-hmm. Porpoise. I will say I didn't work for um, with Rochisha for very long because initially all I all I really wanted was I kind of had trouble sticking to his schedule. So I just wanted to to get some advice and maybe a plan to craft out, you know, something I could stick to yeah. every day. Um, so yeah. it wasn't really concrete yeah. lessons that, that I asked them for help on. Right. I've also found that with tutoring, a different part of my mind turns mm-hmm. on. I'm just so much better at explaining stuff when I have to do it for someone yeah. and it counts versus when I'm by myself, maybe I just cheat myself. I'm just like more lax with my mm-hmm. own standards. I just don't do as a good of a job explaining. I don't know why, but I just, I mean, there's got to be something psychological going on where, you know, because talking, communicating, teaching is a social interaction. So maybe some part of your brain just like turns on is more right. active. So I, I, I've actually found that teaching the test has been a great way to study for the test. Did you start tutoring only after you were done or did you do like blind, did you, you know, participate in the blind review groups that we see pop up on the forums every once in a while? I only started officially tutoring after, after I was done. I um, see. Okay. And when you studied, did you, did you study with other people or was it just by yeah, yourself? Yeah, I studied with one other person. It wasn't for, for very long. I would say a good, a good month. We did, you know, we blind reviewed a few tests. I also had a study yeah. group leading up to my J- July exam, but I, I don't think I was, I was too active 
I'm in it. But I think, you know, like I said, explaining things to other people really helps. I will say, you know, if I can give a quick example that it's one of the reading comp passages. It's about um, Charlotte Gilman's Perkins. It's passage four. It's in the 80s somewhere. And there's one question I distinctly remember. It was just like, what is the function of this passage? And so when I was reviewing it by myself, you know, I think I, I got the question wrong. And when you're just by yourself, like you said, you, you know, I had a habit of, of kind of cheating myself. So I'd very quickly brush over the question and be like, no, of course I know why this is wrong. But when I would write out explanations after, like as a way of keeping myself accountable, I found out it took me a lot longer to actually write out why I was wrong and why the right answer is right. Yeah. So I actually think yeah. I'm just like one answer choice in that passage on the explanations page, I wrote like a whole paragraph, like dissecting every word for <laughs> word. Cause I, I really think it's that important, you know, on the harder questions to be able to do that. I agree. I think I, I didn't make that connection, but now you're, you're reminding me that you wrote a lot in the comments. So that that's analogous to having to mm-hmm. teach, right? I mean, it's just, I feel like it's just a, there are better and worse ways of thinking. I find that teaching is a very good way of thinking because it forces you to clarify your thoughts such in a way that you can communicate it. And there's some objective Mm -hmm. standard out there. The person that you're speaking to has to understand you. So that's at least some bare minimum threshold you have to pass versus, you know, when we typically think about thinking, you're just sitting there quietly, like you're not even, you're not opening your mouth. You're just like thoughts are just floating around in your head. That's actually a pretty, I feel like it's low quality thinking. And then there's also writing as a way of thinking. That's also really high quality thinking writing. So I didn't make the connection, but it, it makes sense. You you did write a ton. And that's it's yeah. not surprising that you you improved because of that. I will say that, you know, in the beginning there were a lot of times where I'd write an explanation and then, you know, days later I get an email, a response saying that I don't quite understand what you mean, blah, blah, blah. And so I'd force myself to go back ah. and kind of edit the explanation. And I'd write down like edit, this yeah. is what I meant. And so yeah. you know, yeah. that was a way I kept myself accountable you know, through studying. That's great. That's great. I'm so, I'm so glad to hear that you did that. I think everyone could benefit more from... I mean, I have selfish reasons for saying that. The more you guys explain stuff, the less I have to explain <laughs> it. But but the selfless reason also, and you know, it's not exclusive, but the selfless reason is that you just improve mm-hmm. when you do it. Like it's just, it's just good for you yeah. to do this. I want to end on a note about your application cycle. You've already sent in your applications. Can you tell us about where you applied? Have you heard back from places? Are you still waiting on certain schools to get back to you? It's uh, right now. It's about it's uh, mm-hmm. early March when we're speaking. Just for context, I sent all my applications in October, mid October. Mm-hmm. I applied quite broadly. I I don't remember the exact number, but it's twenty one or twenty two schools. <laughs> so you yeah. blanketed all the T14s yeah. and then some. And I mean, there's a reason for that. Part of it is just like super Asian parents are like, you're going to apply here. And so, <laughs> and so, you know, I did. And overall, it's been, it's been a lot of good offers. I, I made it my goal in the beginning. I mean, I put in a lot of work, so I kind of wanted the result, you know, to reflect that. So I, yes, I was aiming somewhere in uh, T14, hopefully with, with a good offer and, you know, I will say after I got my 172, I was ecstatic, you know, really happy. I thought, mm-hmm. and and for the record, I, I'm, I think I'm okay to say this. My GPA is a 4.0. I thought I could get in almost, you know, everywhere, but you know, I, I do, I don't have the best, I would say work experience um, ever. So I think that that's a big con. And although the, the stats are there to back it up, you know, I think this year there's a lot, it's a lot more competitive, a lot more applications and a lot higher LSATs. So had to kind of play around with my expectations a bit. But right now, I'm currently deciding between um, 
Penn, Duke, and Cornell. And I'm still waiting on a few other offers. Like I, you know, I live in California, San Jose. So it would be a dream if, you know, I got into Stanford. I'm still currently waiting on that. But yeah, deciding between Penn, Duke, and, and Cornell. And there's a lot of good offers outside T14, but surprisingly, they've offered me, you know, similar amounts of, of scholarship to the ones in T14. That's wonderful. Did you find the application process to be smooth or uh, was it torturous to have to write a personal statement? I don't know what you would call a personal statement, like creative writing. I guess it's like creative. I'm not yeah. the best creative yeah. writer. So I think it was particularly tough for me. I spent, if I had to give like hours count wise, probably 10 to 20, maybe 20 hours on a personal statement. And, you yeah. know, I think it came out halfway decent, but that was probably the hardest part, just writing the essays. I know other people yeah. have, I guess, different problems. Like there's the resume aspect, there's writing a diverse, diversity statement, there's writing all the why essays if you want. But for me, the hardest was just writing the personal statement, I think. Yeah, that's. I feel like that's that's pretty common. You have to talk about yourself, but you can't be overtly yeah. bragging. But you do want to you know, have the reader think well of you mm-hmm. upon finishing. So it's it's a it's an art. I I definitely recommend because I know the the Seven Sage website has great you know basic free information out there. Like I think for my diversity yeah. statement, I was thinking about whether to write one, and so I just looked like I think I just typed in Google should I write a diversity statement, and the Seven Sage website popped up and. I think the way it's categorized is like red, green, and yellow light. Like if you have this factor, go ahead, just write it. Yellow, maybe, and red is like no. And so I wrote a diversity mm-hmm. statement and I, you know, I was unsure whether to write one at first. And I just kind of looked at all the, the free information on seven stage and it was really helpful. And I actually gotten a couple comments from from schools I've been admitted to being like, you know, this essay was really good or really inspiring or whatever. So oh, nice. That's great. If people don't know about this, we have an mm-hmm. admissions course that's ten dollars and includes just a ton of lessons on how mm-hmm. to write. And a lot of the lessons, can't recall off the top of my head how many, but just I would say probably a dozen are free, maybe more than a dozen are, are free. I, I think those lessons will help you uh, to, to think about what topics to write about, how to write, just learning the fact that writing is actually rewriting. So you write a lot and then you have to cut down uh, on what you have to really polish mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the gem of your, your statement. That's... Uh, already really great news and you still have a fair number of schools waiting to hear back from right yeah well that's wonderful i would love to get an update from you maybe somewhere close Mm -hmm. to summer thanks so much for sharing your experience and for coming on to the podcast thank you so much by the way for being a great teacher i i think it was ironic how i bought the course on june 5th and i started like watching your videos and i got my first score back from the may exam on june 5th and so exactly a year. You don't know how many times like I've listened to your explanation on this, this, you know, or this. Well, I'm glad I was able to help. Hi, everyone. It's JY again. Thanks for listening. I hope Al and I were able to give you some ideas about how to incorporate strategies into your own LSAT studies. If you are studying for the test or applying to law school or studying for your law school exams or studying for the bar, come visit us at 7stage.com. We can help. That's it for this episode. Take care of yourself and see you next time. Thank you.